This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. I'm Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. With the resurgence of white nationalism and neo-Nazism, it's important to remember just how it impacted us several decades ago. What we learned about them in the 1930s and 40s is that their most useful tool was propaganda. And we see the same methods used today to vilify critics, to dehumanize opponents, and patiently wait for power to grow. Now, if you heard what I'm about to say from some other source any less credible than common threads, that the Nazis planned on marching in L.A. and publicly hanging some of the most influential figures in Hollywood who happened to be Jewish, such as Al Jolson and Charlie Chaplin, you might think that this story developed out of the imagination of Quentin Tarantino. I mean, he could totally come up with something this wild. But no, we're talking about reality. We're talking about history. And thanks to the efforts of Professor Stephen Ross, we're now able to learn about the treacherous plot to overthrow Hollywood in his new book, Hitler in Los Angeles, How Jews Foiled Nazi Plots Against Hollywood and America. Skeptical? Well, don't touch that dial. A little bit about our guest today. Stephen J. Ross is professor of history at the University of Southern California. He received his degrees from Columbia, Oxford, and Princeton University. Professor Ross has written extensively in the areas of working class history, social history, film history, and political history. His first book, Workers on the Edge, Work, Leisure, and Politics in Industrializing Cincinnati, 1788-1890, was adapted for the screen by Cincinnati Unionists, and made into a documentary entitled They Build the City, The Working People of Cincinnati. His second book, Working Class Hollywood, Silent Film, and the Shaping of Class in America, received the prestigious Theater Library Association Book Award for 1999. It was named by the Los Angeles Times as one of the best books of 1998 and was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize and National Book Award in History. Professor Ross's book, Hollywood Left and Right, How Movie Stars Shaped American Politics, received a Pulitzer Prize nomination and a Film Scholars Award from the Academy of Motion Picture Arts. Ross's op-ed pieces have appeared in the L.A. Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, and many others. He's appeared on the Today Show, Nightline, CNN, and Fox. He has lectured at colleges internationally, and he directs the Kasdan Institute for the Study of the Jewish role in American life. And he's also the co-founder and former co-director of the Los Angeles Institute for the Humanities at the University of Southern California. Very impressive resume, and we are looking so forward to a conversation with Stephen Ross. Steve, welcome to Common Threads. Thanks for having me, Fred. Certainly. Uh, You say you found something that every historian dreams of, a story that has never been told. Why hasn't it been told, and how did you find it? 
Well, those are two very different questions. The first one is, I think, my generation of historians who came out of the civil rights movement, came out of the anti-war movement, uh, made what we call in history the teleological era. That is, because Germany lost the war, we assumed, well, we never had to take Nazism and fascism in America seriously, but <clears throat> communism survived. And so from the 60s, 70s, 80s on, historians have really looked at either communism or anti-communism, the House on american Activities Committee, the Hollywood Ten. This has kind of uh, <clears throat> been our main focus. And that has been a major error because, in fact, the, the, the fascist and Nazi movement in this country during the 30s up through Pearl Harbor was incredibly strong in this country. And there were many people, many people arguing that we went in on the wrong side of the war. We, would have, we should have joined with Hitler against uh, that godless Stalin and communism. And so <clears throat> the history of sort of right-wing extremism is really one that's been underwritten. And the way I came to find it is I had, when I was writing Hollywood Left and Right, uh, it's a book about ten Hollywood figures, nine actors, and Louis B. Mayer, head of MGM Studios. Five of them are on the left and five are on the right. And I was writing a chapter on Edward G. Robinson, uh, who really pioneered what I call issue-oriented politics. And he did it in the form of being one of the people who helped create the Hollywood Anti-Nazi League in May 1936. And these were people who used the uh, power of celebrity to try to bring attention to the dangers of Nazism and fascism, both here and abroad. And so I got very interested in the Hollywood Anti-Nazi League, and I went online to sort of see where else I might find material on them. And I came across a website that had been, <coughs> excuse me, organized by the Special Collections Unit at Cal State Northridge. Uh, it was called In Our Own Backyard, Nazis and Fascists in 1930s, 40s L.A. And I read it, and I thought, I know nothing about this. Why? And so I, I sort of went online, saw they had a collection of several hundred boxes, of which they had probably half a dozen boxes on the Hollywood Anti-Nazi League. And I thought, no, for what would be one paragraph, this was too much material to go through. But when I said to myself, when I'm done with this book, I want to go back to Cal State Northridge and see what's there. And that's what I did. I went back and discovered that, in fact, there was a spy ring being run out of Los Angeles by a man named Leon Lewis, who was the founding executive secretary of the Anti-Defamation League. And he ran this spy ring from August 1933 until the end of World War II. And when I discovered this, I thought, oh, my God, this is like, uh, this is an unbelievable story. You started by talking about Quentin Tarantino. He couldn't come up with something this outrageous. And the thing is, what makes it even more incredible is it's all true. These people, these Nazis and fascists, were not just trying to kill Jews, but they thought if they could kill the most famous Hollywood Jews, plus people like Charlie Chaplin, who was the most famous man in the world, that it would lead to bloodbaths throughout America. Americans would rise up against the Jews, and then they would rise up against communists, and the Nazis and fascists would lead that revolution against the communists in America and take over the American government on behalf of the American people. 
<clears throat> that was their vision. And I thought, oh, my God, uh, uh, this is just an amazing story to tell. And uh, I told it. That, that's wonderful. And you're right. I, I think uh, maybe I gave Quentin a little bit too much credit. <laughs> I said that it could have come out of his imagination. Uh, but I have a feeling that if anything would would pull him out of his uh, his retirement, uh, th- uh, this story would. Um, so I understand that uh, Leon Lewis was frustrated that Jewish groups were talking too much with little action. Uh, and that, I'm, I'm curious, was this part of the mentality that encouraged Jews to keep their heads down and not attract too much attention, similar to how many Jewish groups reacted to the refugee crisis, crisis which is to say, not much at all? Well, it, it's on what you said is only half true. There's much more than we think. And yes, the standard wisdom is that why didn't Jews do more that they remain quiet? And what I would argue is that they actually didn't. Many Jews did remain quiet. Many Jews were raising their voices. But the problem is the Jewish community had a very divided strategy. And a divided strategy is not the same as no strategy at all. So the main uh, fault lines come right after Hitler is made Reich Chancellor in January 1933. Jewish groups start debating what we should do. And they split into two basic camps. One is the American Jewish Congress, which is led in many ways by uh, Rabbi Stephen Wise. And they call for an international boycott of all German products until Hitler stops persecuting all minorities, not just Jews, but every minority group. And their feeling is if we put economic pressure on Germany, it will force Hitler to moderate his policies. Well, the other side was the American Jewish Committee, led by Judge Proskauer, who had argued that if you do this, Hitler, if you get in Hitler's face, he's going to double down and make it even worse for the Jews, and that you're better off having a behind-the-door strategy where they believe they would contact religious leaders in Germany and have them pressure Hitler to uh, ease his policies. And this debate, they were having rallies, they were putting their policies into action. There was, in fact, a boycott, which did hurt the German economy, but not enough for Hitler to ease his policies. But a man like Leon Lewis, who, as I said, was the founding executive secretary of the Anti-Defamation League in 1913, living in Chicago, he had to move to L.A. for health reasons in 1931. He had been gassed during World War One. And he's attending these meetings, and he's sitting in on both sides. But for him, the frustration came when, in late July, the Nazis in L.A., who called themselves the Friends of New Germany, held their first public meeting, and it drew about 400 people. And they announced they were going to save America from its two greatest threats, Jews and communists, who, as far as they were concerned, were one and the same. And that at that point, Leon Lewis thought, enough talk. Now we need action. And as a World War I veteran, he had joined the disabled American veterans. And he went to their meeting hall, and he spoke to four veterans, men who had all faced fire. Because Leon Lewis said, if I'm going to have spies, these have to be people who have faced death before and have lived through it. And he asked four men and their wives to go undercover and join every Nazi and fascist group in L.A., try to rise to positions of power 
and then sent him daily reports on what they were discovering. And he ran that spy operation from August 33 until the end of the war. Now, would the Nazis have had such a significant presence in Los Angeles if there was no Hollywood there? Or was that a, a significant motivator for the presence? Well, there were two main motivators that made Los Angeles, I would argue, the most important city in America for the Nazis, more important than New York, a city they referred to as Jew York. Uh, the first is Hollywood, <clears throat> and Hitler and uh, Joseph Goebbels, his minister of propaganda and enlightenment, were both major movie fans, and apparently Hitler watched a movie every night before he went to bed, and both of them agreed that one of the reasons Germany had lost World War I is because of the British and American motion picture propaganda machine that turned many uh, citizens against Germany uh, turned many neutral people against Germany and neutral nations, and they were determined to make sure that Hollywood would produce no anti-Nazi films, and so they sent over uh, their counsel, George Gisling, to Los Angeles in the spring of 1933, uh, May 33, to make sure that uh, Hollywood would produce no anti-Nazi films, and he armed them with threats of a boycott of all American products in Germany unless the moguls complied. Uh, and they did eventually. And the second reason Nazis uh, thought L.A. was so important was because New York, the ports of New York City, were closely guarded. Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia, who many people may not know, was half Jewish, and he was an ardent anti-Nazi and he made sure that the Nazis could not bring in, or at least minimize, the possibility of them bringing in uh, propaganda material, spies, money, and distributing it through America. Whereas the ports of Los Angeles were totally open. There was no policing of the ports, and even though it was illegal to bring propaganda in without registering it, they were doing it all the time. They were, L.A. was the place to send in their spies, secret orders for Germans around the country, money, and anything else they needed. And no one was paying attention in L.A. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Common Threads on WGVU-FM. I'm Fred Stella, and with me today is Professor Stephen Ross. We're talking about uh, his book, Hitler in Los Angeles, How Jews Foiled Nazi Plots Against Hollywood and America. So... Question here. I saw a bit of footage that's up on uh, on your site. Did I see uh, a, a group of uh, KKK members in assembly there or, or not? Yes, because the Klan and the Nazis struck up a partnership uh, throughout the 30s and even during the war years. That, yeah, that's, that's what I, I assumed happened. I was going to ask you if they allied themselves. Uh, did they have... Did they have any different uh, motivations, or was, were they pretty much hand-in-glove? No, they were slightly different. Uh, the Klan, for example, one of the Leon Lewis's later spies who comes in after he has his initial three, three of the four spies he has testify in open court to try to raise American awareness that Nazis are doing all this and no one's paying attention and they testify in court under oath uh, about Nazis bringing in propaganda, spies, secret orders, 
uh, plots for murder, and no one, no one cares. No one cares because it's just a bunch of Jews they're plotting against. Um, and so Leon Lewis, once he has spies testify, they're burned. So he has to go for new spies. And the person who becomes one of his two main spies from 1934 on is a man named Charles Slocum, who it turns out he was born in Oakland, raised in Long Beach, and he had joined the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, Long Beach is one of the strongest centers of Klan activity in the 20s and 30s in America, certainly outside of the Deep South. And he joins the Klan, but within a short amount of time, he joins the Klan because he hates communists. But he discovers the Klan hates Jews, blacks, and Catholics, and he doesn't hate any of those groups. And he winds up going to Leon Lewis and saying, these people are not who I thought, can I help you? And Lewis tells him to stay a member of the Klan, to in fact uh, rise up to volunteer, and he becomes the Klan's point person with all the Nazi and fascist groups in L.A. Now, most of the Klan, all of the Klan were anti-communist. Most of them were anti-Jewish and uh, anti-black and anti-Catholic. The Nazis were anti-Jewish and anti-black, and Catholics were low down on the uh, scale. But the Nazis hated more people than the Klan hated. So they were brethren in hate, but people like Slocum thought that the Klan went too far, and he would actually rise up to become the chief recruiter for the Klan in Southern California. That's how successful he was as a spy. That's impressive. Let's uh, let's go back uh, a bit. We were talking about the the anti-Nazi uh, propaganda films. You know, I remember so clearly the World War II films that came out. Uh, you know, pretty much. It, well, they of course they had to come out in the forties then because that's when America entered the war. So. I remember those and what motivators they were to the American public and to uh, the military. I don't remember anti-Nazi films in the 30s. Could you list a couple of them and, and uh, just give a, give a brief history? You don't remember them because there was only one. Oh. Uh, Confessions of a Nazi Spy that came out in the spring of 1939. And the reason for that is I mentioned that uh, Germany had sent over a, a council, the Council General in Los Angeles, George Gisling, uh, in 1933, said he came over armed with uh, a hammer to hammer Hollywood, and that was the German export law of 1931 that said any studio that makes a film that insults the German people or German nation will have its films banned in Germany. And Germany was the second largest market for Hollywood after Great Britain. And so the moguls complied. And a year later, even though they groused about it, Hollywood had been under attack from many religious groups as being immoral, perverted, too much sexuality, too much crime. And so they passed a self-censorship code called the Production Code of America. And that contained uh, a Section 10 that said uh, no studio can make a film that in any way mocks, attacks, or disparages a foreign leader or a foreign country if you want to get a production code seal. That was the kind of seal of approval. Well, you couldn't, if you didn't have that 
production code seal of approval, you couldn't get into a first-run movie theater. And that's where studios made 70 to 80% of their profit. And so as much as they hated the fact that they couldn't do anything uh, because they would lose all their business, the studios complied. And the first anti-Nazi film came about because in the uh, fall of 1938, the FBI broke a Nazi spy ring that was operating out of New York. Unfortunately, before the main uh, Leon Turo, who is the FBI agent who had broke the ring, he had notified his bosses that he had identified all the key people and that they were going to round them up. But uh, J. Edgar Hoover, who was a huge publicity count, decided he didn't want Turo to get the credit, so he held a news conference saying that the, they had broken the spy ring and they were rounding them up. The problem is they had not arrested the main leaders. So when Hoover went public, the main leaders fled the country, and the people left were basically the lower-level spies. But they went on trial in New York City in the fall of 1938, Warner Brothers sent one of their best uh, screenwriters to cover the trial, and within four weeks of the trial ending, he had a screenplay called Confessions of a Nazi Spy uh, that he sent to the production code. And the production code read through it, and there's just this amazing letter that I found in the files, because they, they're basically the Hollywood self-censorship. And in their files, what they had said is that Technically, this film fits the code because it's not a film that disparages Marx or in any way um, insults Germany. It's, in fact, based on a true story of a trial in New York. And therefore, they say technically the film makes the provisions of the code and can be shown. But then there's a little note saying we would like the Warner Brothers not to make this film because... They're not considering all the wonderful things that Hitler has done for Germany and for the German people. And so we would urge Warner Brothers not to make this film. And Warner Brothers told them to take a hike. They opened the film in April 1939. The Nazis in L.A. had threatened that they would uh, attack the theater. And so you had armed police on top of the theater and you had plain clothesmen inside the theater for the opening night. And that would be uh, the only anti-Nazi film until uh, the production code lifted its restriction in January 1940. What is the difference between that production code and the Hayes Code? Were they related? Uh, the Hayes Code came out in 1921-22. Uh, people didn't follow it very carefully. I see. Okay. And so in 34, you had a real backlash. I mean, you have to understand, this is a very peculiar industry in a, in a peculiar situation where you have Jews making the movies, Catholics censoring the movies, and Protestants <laughs> watching the movies. It's all about interfaith cooperation. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh, we only have a few minutes left uh, but uh, before we leave, let's at least start to talk about George Geisling. Who was this guy, and uh, you know, how does he fit into this? Because it's really a fascinating story. He, he did play both sides. Right. Well, George Geisling has been the villain 
of decades of Hollywood history. And that he was the man, as I said, Hitler sent to uh, Los Angeles to make sure that the studios would not produce any Nazi films. And so he was constantly uh, asking to see any film that dealt with Germany or a German situation, whether it was the past, the present, future. Uh, And for the Hollywood moguls, he was the most hated man in Hollywood because he constantly forced them to cut things from their films. But I wanted to know something more about Gisling. I wanted to know, how did Los Angeles elite society uh, see this man, this villain of Hollywood history? And so I started reading the society page in the L.A. Times. And I read it from the moment he arrived until uh, Franklin Roosevelt expelled all German diplomats in June 1941. And what I discovered is he was by far the most popular diplomat in Los Angeles during those years. He was one of the most, if not the most sophisticated diplomat. He spoke multiple languages. He had been educated in Davos, Switzerland, at a special uh, gymnasium that specialized in ancient languages and cultures like Sanskrit. He had a law degree uh, where he had to actually write a Ph.D. thesis like uh, uh, well, you know, the, the length of a thesis. He was a sophisticated dancer, a um, bridge player, and uh, was welcomed into every home in the city. And I thought, this man just strikes me as far too sophisticated and too cultured to be a Nazi. I, I thought something's wrong, and he reminded me in many ways of my father-in-law, who had uh, a German Jew who had been in Germany in medical school in the 1930s and until Hitler expelled all the Jews, and he went to Padua Medical School for a year until Mussolini expelled the Jews and then wound up finishing his medical degree at Northwestern University in uh, Chicago. And he remained a German file the rest of his life. He would hum opera, he would quote Goethe, and one day I said to him, Kurt, how can you still be in love with German culture after everything Hitler did? And he said, German culture has been around for hundreds, if not thousands of years. Hitler has come and Hitler is gone. I'm not going to let him have a double victory, killing the Jews and killing German culture for me. And I thought, this is who Gisling is. And so I started digging around, and I eventually found this letter from Brigadier General Julius S. Klein. And, and excuse me, Steve, let me stop yeah. you right there. That That is a wonderful, wonderful cliffhanger for okay. next week. <laughs> All I will tell your audience is this man is not who he seems to be. Yes. Everyone has gotten it wrong. Yes, yes, and they will have to tune in. They'll have to wait one full week, but uh, same time, same station, This is WGVU's Common Threads. I'm Fred Stella, and with me today has been Professor Stephen Ross, and we were talking about his uh, book, Hitler in Los Angeles, How Jews Foiled Nazi Plots Against Hollywood and America. Please join us again. You're listening to WGVU. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, 
its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads. Thank you.